2: From Mamma Mia, I'm Gemma Bath. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. One day, you're gainfully employed in one of the most prestigious buildings in the country. You might have a car and a driver, a decent pay packet, and most importantly, a voice in our nation's capital. But what happens if you become one of the election's losers? What's it like to one day go from being on the national or even global stage to maybe not even being in the theatre. Today we look at one of the most famous political losers in Australian history to see how some may be feeling after the weekend's results from the ballot box. Back in 2007, John Howard was the Prime Minister of Australia. More than a decade earlier, in 1996, he'd taken over the top job from Paul Keating. Back then, disenfranchised Labour voters off the back of the recession we had to have were called Howard Battlers. He entered as the head of the Australian Parliament with a 45-seat majority, the second biggest in Australian history after Malcolm Fraser's 55-seat advantage. But leading up to the election in 2007, the Coalition had been behind Labour in the polls, much the same as they were in the lead up to this election. Labor had latched on to the government's Work Choices Industrial Relations changes, which scared a lot of working-class Aussies, who were facing signing contracts that seemed to give their employer more power. Kevin Rudd was proving to be a popular opposition leader, and the polls reflected that too, support for the coalition dropping even further when he stepped into the leadership role. So when the Australian public went to the polls on November 24, 2007, not only did the coalition lose government, The Prime Minister, John Howard, Australia's second longest-serving Prime Minister, made political history by becoming the only second-serving Prime Minister to lose his seat of Bennelong, falling to former ABC journalist Maxine McHugh.
3: I accept full responsibility for the Liberal Party campaign and I therefore accept full responsibility for the Coalition's defeat in this election campaign.
2: So, on Friday, November 23... John Howard was the leader of an entire country. By the next Friday, he was effectively unemployed. Howard told Studio 10 in 2014, seven years after his defeat, that he had no regrets about how he went out.
3: The public had got tired of us mm. in 2007. We'd been in office for almost 12 years, and uh, even though they didn't dislike us, they are tired of us. Yeah. They wanted a change and Kevin Rudd looked like a safe pair of hands. I'd prefer to be taken out by the public because, after all, uh, they're the people you serve. Mm-hmm.
2: So what do you do when you go from top of the pile to, well, nothing? For starters, former PMs get a pretty decent pension. Mr Howard reportedly gets $250,000 a year, with a stack of bonuses on top of that, including travel expenses and cash to run his office. Just a couple of months after the election loss, in January 2008, Howard signed on to the Washington Speakers Bureau, earning money through public speaking events. He was also nominated to sit on the board of Australian and New Zealand Cricket, given the role of Chairman of the International Democrat Union, and was appointed Director of the foundation established to preserve the legacy of legendary cricketer Donald Bradman. He has written several books and is still involved in politics, endorsing the no vote in the Australian Marriage Law Postal Survey and endorsing Dominic Perrottet to succeed former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. David Spears, working for Sky News back in 2009, asked Mr Howard if he missed politics. The former PM's response was, of course.
3: Oh, you always miss something that's been part of your life for 33 years. Uh, of course I would would have liked to have won the last election, but I didn't, and I've moved on, uh, but I still retain, obviously, a great interest in my own party and, and, more importantly, an interest in the future of my country.
2: But it's not just about losing a whole heap of power and privilege. You literally lose your home, if you've chosen to take residence at the Lodge, and you're kicked out of your office space. As political scientist and associate professor Paul Williams from Griffith University explains, it's not just the PM that loses their job, all of their staff do too.
4: Well, that's right. If if they're party appointments, party political appointments. So if you're a backbencher and you lose your seat because it's a marginal seat, the people working in your office, they would usually go too because they're usually partisan appointments. So people like secretaries, maybe other people working in your office, they would lose their position. If you're a minister, the minister would have political appointments. So their media appointments and political advisers. Are usually partisan, so they would have to leave. But of course, if the minister hasn't lost his or her seat and they're still a member, or, and then they become a shadow minister, then those people would be kept on, and to continue, you know, politically advising and media advising in terms just from the opposition benches. But if you're a public servant, the rules are, are somewhat different, um, because if the public service is meant to be neutral, objective, and offers frank and fearless advice and offers permanent employment, unless you're right at the top of the public service tree. So, in terms of say being a director general or, for example, even a head of prime minister in cabinet or in charge of the prime minister's office, naturally they are political appointments. They are often members of the ruling party. And so that, uh, you know, you're simpatico with the government politically. So LNP appointments wouldn't want to work in Anthony Albanese's office and Anthony Albanese wouldn't want Liberal National Party appointees. So so it really depends on whether, you know where you are in the tree. Are you, are you a backbencher? Are you a minister? Are you the prime minister?
2: Sometimes former leaders make their unhappiness known after they lose their post. As The Guardian's political reporter, Amy Ramikus explains, sometimes they just hang around.
1: We've gone through quite a lot of prime ministers over the last couple of decades in Australia, more prime ministers than governments. When Tony Abbott lost the prime ministership, he didn't do what we've seen most prime ministers who have lost the leadership do which is Leave the Parliament, Tony Abbott made sure everybody knew exactly how how unhappy he was by remaining in the backbench. And you would see him in each question time, often coming in late, coming by and sitting next to Kevin Andrews, who had been one of his key allies in the party room, just kind of like slumped over, just, you know, making sure everyone knew his displeasure. He also would helpfully pop up and basically just say what he thought was wrong with Malcolm Turnbull's policy ideas. And this was his own leader in the party. So he was, you know, contradicting with the smile and quite civilly, constantly contradicting what Malcolm Turnbull was saying and you often then would hear stories about party room divides and we did see the end of Malcolm Turnbull's prime ministership you know only a couple of years after taking it from Tony Abbott and it's because when you don't when you don't leave all of those grievances stay with you. And so we saw the coalition continue to be divided along the Malcolm Turnbull, Tony Abbott lines, which is how we ended up with Scott Morrison as the prime minister. But we also saw it recently with Barnaby Joyce when he lost the Nationals leadership. He again didn't resign. He would go and he would sit in the backbench, and he was pretty unhappy about that. He used to call it something like, you know, the no-go zone or like, you know, where all the other – people without hope stood and watched the com cars, which is the MP's cars, leave the ministry wing. And he was quite angry and obviously angry, but he did the same thing in that he stayed and he continued to sow that discontent within the Nationals party room. The splits never left. And then suddenly you have Michael McCormack, who had been leader. He was turfed and Barnaby Joyce was reinstalled. So we have had several instances. Well, I suppose you could say we had it with you know, Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard as well. When Kevin Rudd was displaced as prime minister, he also didn't leave. And then we continued to have the ruptures within the Labour Party, which ended up with Kevin Rudd taking back the prime ministership from Julia Gillard. So when leaders lose the leadership and don't leave, you just end up with all of that discontent and all of those grievances staying within the party room, which just continues to destabilise it. You've seen them try to address that in recent years by saying, well, we're going to give, you know, grassroots members of the political party more power in who we choose as as leaders. But it doesn't necessarily always play out that way. Bill Shorten, to his credit, has mostly, you know, been very cooperative and been working with the new Labour leadership team since he lost the leadership after the 2019 election loss, to try and get Labor elected, but that doesn't tend to be the standard in Australian politics. Malcolm Turnbull once called them miserable ghosts, and I think that we, (laughs) having become one himself, I think he can understand at times how that, that discontent and those grudges can continue to consume you even after you've lost the top job.
2: We also caught up with Mark Kenny, Professor of Australian Studies at the Australian National University's College of Arts and Social Sciences, and host of the weekly politics and public affairs podcast, Democracy Sausage with Mark Kenny, on Friday before the election. Mark, the other option to consider here is a Prime Minister remaining leader of their party even after they lose an election. Is it customary to step aside in that scenario?
3: It can go either way. In government, or even in, let's be more specific, in this circumstance, neither of these two leaders would be viable after this election if they lose. I think if Scott Morrison's government crashes out of office, there'll be a lot of people blaming him in particular. He does appear to have been a net drag on their vote. And it's an extraordinary situation that we have a prime minister who can't go to certain parts of the country, parts of the country that are actually held by his party. You know, these teal seats, for example, in these inner urban areas, Safe liberal seats historically, and the prime minister is so toxic in terms of uh, his standing with those voters, thanks to climate change and the treatment of women and a range of things, the integrity question, that he can't go there. And 2019 was very much, you know, Scott Morrison's lone hand win. He called it a miracle, and and that was the sort of folklore. This time around, voters know him better, and if his side doesn't win, uh, it'll be very much down to Scott Morrison, and they'll punt him quite quickly. It then depends on. You know who else is around? Does Josh Frydenberg retain his seat? And if he does, presumably he's the the next leader. But it's a world of pain, I think, for the Liberal Party, because it will have a big ideological argument about whether it should shift to the right or shift more to the centre to cover off this sort of teal rebellion. On the Labour side, same thing. Albanese has been unpopular in the past. He took a long time to make headway against the government uh, there were there were commentators. I was one of them who suggested that perhaps he wasn't cutting through and wasn't the best person to lead Labor. In the end, they've stuck with him. He's campaigned. I think you'd say tremulously. It was a you know a difficult start to the campaign, and uh, at no point has he looked completely relaxed on the campaign trail. Although he has got better as it has come to the final final clutch uh, stroke or or, or, or period. His performance uh, at the press club on Wednesday was, uh, I think, probably his best performance of the campaign. But if Labor loses again, he would uh, be shuffled off and uh, it'd be time for generational change. And again, I think the term bloodbath might be appropriate.
2: Whichever way you look at it, being the loser of the race stings. You either have the country decide you aren't worthy of the top job or your own party, the colleagues you work beside every day, decide they no longer want you running the show. It's brutal. As Associate Professor Paul Williams explains, how personally you take that really does come down to the individual.
4: Look, I think they're both pretty difficult things. I know that uh, the Howard government was genuinely recognised as a very competent government. The economy was strong. Uh, Howard had great unity in his cabinet. By any measure, you know, it was a successful government. And yet the electorate threw him out for what we called a Howard light version, a younger version of John Howard and Kevin Rudd. And of course, John Howard lost his own seat in that as well. So John Howard, you know, must have been quite perplexed and maybe even bitter about that. But, you know, you'd think that being turned on by your own party colleagues would be a very bitter pill to swallow. You know, you think you have great faith in your colleagues and then they turn around, particularly, you know, Kevin Rudd again, it didn't even get to a party room vote in the middle of the night in in July in 2010. Kevin Rudd's colleagues knock on his door and say, mate, you have to go. You've got no, no longer got the support of the party. We've been led to believe that he said, well, I'll take it to a party room vote. And his colleagues said, don't bother. So that must have been a very bitter pill to swallow that, you know, these people that that really he got them into government. We've got to remember it was Kevin Rudd and no one else that got them into government. And then to have those people turn on you at the last minute must have been a very bitter pill to swallow. So, look, most politicians, not all, but most politicians go into public life with a great sense of self-confidence. They don't second guess themselves. They've got great confidence in their own abilities. You know, they also like to be the centre of attention. And, uh, and so when they leave public life, you know, I think we've all heard of that relevance deprivation syndrome. A lot of politicians really do miss being the centre of media attention.
2: And for many, that looks like returning to the careers they had
4: before. It's very common for, you know, former politicians to go back to what they know. We've seen Christian Porter, for example. He's actually practising at the bar again as we speak.
2: This episode of The Quickie was produced by myself, Gemma Bath. Claire Murphy and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Jacob
0: Round. Victoria Beckham has always been known for her tiny frame, but an interview she's just done has gone viral because of her quote, that it's an old-fashioned attitude wanting to be really thin in her mind, she's probably thinking like, wow, what a role model I am to say that being thin is out of fashion, which I don't think thin shaming and fat shaming are the same thing. Like they're weighted differently, Mm -hmm. but you're still telling a whole group of women women that their bodies are out of fashion. And then also saying that this is the healthier, more fashionable look while not actually doing anything with your brand to change that. Mm. Hear the spills breakdown of why it's so problematic and why it's not necessarily Victoria's fault in your podcast app now this podcast was made by Mamma Mia, the only women's media company in Australia. If you love the show, the best thing you can do is become a Mamma Mia subscriber. Mamma Mia subscribers get access to every podcast, exclusive videos, and all the great articles on Mamma Mia. It only costs $5.75 a month which is less than a large coffee, or a small coffee if you get oat milk. If you believe in women's media, if you believe in a purpose-driven media company like Mamma Mia, whose core purpose is to make the world a better place for women and girls, please see the link in our show notes.